0: This morning I want to introduce a friend of mine to you and have him come forward. Mike Gordon, I have known for coming up on a quarter of a century, which frightens me to think that we're getting that old that we would know each other for close to a quarter of a century. And uh, Mike is in town from Idaho. Um, we uh, did youth ministry together in Florida. Uh, we planted churches in succession. He planted Center Point Ocala and then I ripped off the name and planted Center Point Church Tallahassee with his permission of course. And and, uh, we've been friends for a really long time, and now he works in the marketplace like most of you. Uh, He works, uh, he's going to tell you a little bit about that, but I thought today as he was in town, and particularly as we today look at Daniel's life and Daniel's involvement in culture and what that meant for him to have value in culture, independent of uh, being a vocational minister, uh, I thought that would be a, a, a neat thing for you to hear, a unique perspective for somebody who is quite successful at uh, pastoral ministry. Mike at one time was considered the leading youth ministry expert in the Presbyterian Church in America and taught classes at Reformed Theological Seminary. And so he's had both the experience of being in ministry and the experience of operating at a high level and in the marketplace. And, and so I wanted to say first, welcome. Thanks. Well, Thanks. Uh, Mike is also a person who's been particularly supportive of Prism Church. He's one of my friends who's been a part of the support team that actually has paid Carolyn and I for the past three or four years. So uh, I'm particularly grateful for you in that regard. Um, that said, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about your story, your transition from ministry to the workplace, and and then looks like you're heading back to ministry again too. Uh, I'm more, more interested in having them hear a little bit about how, uh, what kind of, how, what kind of adjustment that was for you in terms of how you saw yourself in the world uh, as a vocational pastor versus somebody who was working in the world? Uh, you know, what was that transition like for you? Sure.
1: Um, it, it was, you know, people think it's a transition as far as a job goes, and it is. It's a transition um, doing, moving from full-time ministry where you're a professional Christian, okay, to becoming... Um, someone who is, like all the rest of us, is set um, there on Sunday mornings um, in the pews and involved in ministry. The, the transition for me was interesting because um, I was telling Chuck this last night, and I don't know if this is where you want to go, so you just interrupt me and hang me. But one of the things that I found was this is that I, um, I would preach and teach, uh, and did for many, many years, that that our our work is found, not listen, not in what we do or the kind of people that we are, but in the fact that we belong to Jesus Christ. And that um, because of his grace and his mercy and his redemptive work in our lives, that our position before God is the fact that we stand in Jesus Christ. Um, once I moved out of ministry and found myself in um, the normal workplace, then I, I realized that I didn't really believe. For some reason, and I think this is a plague against, amongst a lot of pastors and people that are in um, full-time Christian ministry, is that somehow we would teach, oh yeah, God sees us in our, and accepts us because of our relationship with Christ, but somehow in our minds, it's, and it's, it's a twisted thing, it's a guy thing, it's a man thing, it's because we're <laughs> men, um, and I mean men uh, and, and women. Mankind. Yeah, man, there there you go. There's that we're mankind and because of our sinfulness is that somehow we think that God kind of takes extra pleasure in us because we do full-time Christian ministry. And I found myself out of that and really struggling with where and what I really believed. Uh, and it was a great transition for me. Um, I know a lot of people that have been in um, just in work for lack of a better word, I guess people call that secular work, just normal work. and and then jump into ministry full-time. And I did it the other way. Um, I went straight through college and graduate school and went right into ministry, involved in ministry from the time that I was 20 on, and then moved into um, into just regular work. And the point that that I want to make is that um, for me it was an incredible struggle, but a great struggle to come to the realization that my identity in Christ is just that good at something in ministry, not because I'm successful at something in ministry, but because God, through Jesus Christ, had redeemed me and brought me to himself and and made me his son. And my worth and value to him is is not in what I do, but in who I
0: As you head back towards vocational ministry um, uh, in, in light of some of what you've said, but what are other things that you would want to say to other pastors like me? Uh, from the vantage point of somebody who works 24 hours, or you know works 24, works a lot of hours a week, and uh, and in terms of what pastors or churches expect from people who are believers, what do you take into your future role again as a pastoral staff person that now maybe you're going to feel a little bit more strongly than you did even when you were leading the flock, so to speak. Sure.
1: As pastors, we motivate people and we try to encourage people and sometimes guilt people into ministry, helping out, right? You know, what are you doing? Why aren't you here early? Why aren't you inside up? Why aren't you greeting? Why aren't you involved in some kind of educational program? Why aren't you involved in worship? You have all those, maybe you've been there, maybe you haven't, maybe you Chuck's that kind of guy. Um, So, uh, I know I was, you know, we didn't mean to guilt people, but we we tend to put pressure on people. What we forget is that all of us, and I'm one of us, is that we work 40 plus hours a week, right? We have families, we have things, we have yards to cut, all these things that we do, and the time that we give to the church is precious time. Mm. It's precious to us, and the reason that we give it to the church and to the work of the ministry is because we believe that God um, has called us to do that. And that, um, and it's an opportunity for us to, in a way, give of give our time to ministry. And I think that as a pastor, you have a tendency to guilt people and push them and, and think, you know, we, you really need to be here. And um, as I've been involved in, outside of ministry as a profession, and now I'm in a volunteer basis like so many other people in the church. I often say to pastors, and especially I said this to my pastor a couple times hey, um, what do you do on your So motivates me and other people that we say, we can't do anything else but serve because God's called us to that, number one. And secondly, we want to be part of what's going on. Hmm. I hope that makes sense. Um, it's, It's definitely been an interesting transition for me. But I think back to some of the ways and some of the things that I've said, things to motivate people in the ministry. And then some of the things that I've seen other pastors and other people involved in ministry. Wonder why anybody's ever doing it, um, and so hopefully the goal is is that we give of our time, we give of our energies, and we give of our resources um, because we we want to be part of what's going on for the kingdom of
0: God. One final question, and that is: many people, and I talk to folks all the time, they'll say. I I feel like I'm not doing anything because I'm not in vocational ministry. I'm not doing anything with the kingdom. Or maybe they've been taught by a pastor uh, at some point in their life that there wasn't any value to their work independent of their opportunity to tell others at their workplace about Jesus. What have you come to understand about that in fresh or new ways since you've been in the workplace? You know, the value of being a part of God's work, wherever that is, and being... Excellent at whatever I do, whether I'm a plumber or whether I'm a minister or whether I'm a doctor.
1: Yeah. The passage says, you know, whatever you do is doing to the Lord. I think that um, I think that's true about our work—the opportunity to do the very best that we can um, and to work toward excellence, not for money and uh, in the workplace, and maybe you may be rewarded that way, not for promotion, although you may be rewarded that way, but ultimately. Um, to say, when you lay your head on your pillow, that I did my very best. Um, in so doing, I also honored God. It's, uh, it's, an, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting transition that I've made. In that no longer am I what I do occupationally is for, quote unquote, the building of the kingdom. But it really is for the kingdom's sake. What I do, um, I do as unto the Lord, and when people notice or give me, uh, for lack of a better word, kudos for what I do, I can say, Father, that's for you, and I take um, and I take the opportunity to, as often as I possibly can, um, to let people know that I'm a follower of Christ. as a desire to to let him to experience the pleasure of hearing him say, Good job, well done, good and faithful servant. You put your hand in the plow, you did what you were called to do, and you did it well. Excellent. Uh, is that,
0: that's, that yeah. that's excellent. Will you give him a nice prism thank you for being here today? <laughs> Thanks, bud. <laughs> that I gotta tell you is a tepid prism thank you. Uh I don't mean to be harsh or anything, I'm just saying enthusiasm. Uh, no, good. We're glad to, glad to have you. Uh, Mike, thank you very much. Uh, we, uh, Mike and I met in Ocala, Florida when I went to work at a Christian radio station where I was a, where I was a disc jockey. And uh, for those of you who don't know, that's kind of where I got my vocational start, was to say I was going to be in radio. I remember the first time I actually was on the radio was at West Virginia University at their student station. And, and, uh, and the thrill and the jolt that that was. And I thought, I'll never be uh, bored with this work. And sure enough, not long after that, I, I had to do something else. And so I ended up graduating from college, and I got my first job in a real radio station in the Washington, D.C. area, a little AM station. And I was on the airwaves in Washington, D.C., and I thought to myself, I can never be happier than I am right now. And sure enough, a little time went by and, and I wasn't happy anymore. And then I took a new job and I went to Ocala, Florida and helped start an FM station where I was the program director and the morning show guy. And I thought I'll never be happier than I am right now and I'll never need to do anything else. And sure enough, time went by and I wasn't happy again. <laughs> and, and it seemed like I was learning very quickly that vocational pursuits in and of themselves are never gonna satisfy something that... I long for deep down inside. I've actually experienced this in pastoral ministry too where I've been a part of things that I thought were successful by the world's terms and found myself discontent. And that's because I I was not finding the pleasure of God in those things. I was doing those things thinking that they in and of themselves were gonna satisfy that deepest part of my soul. I remember very specifically a song That I heard on the radio in Ocala. It came out in the 1990s when contemporary Christian music was big. And I know all the 20-somethings think all that music is cheesy. And now that we look back, it was a little cheesy. But there was a song by a group called For Him. And I remember when I heard it the first time, I thought, there's something really wrong with this song. And the song was titled, I Want to Be a Man That You Can Write About. And the whole ethos of the song was, "I want to do something so significant in my life that people will, when I'm dead, think what a great servant of God that guy was." And even when I heard it the first time, I thought, "I think this is kind of twisted around." I think the goal of our lives is that people would look at us and not say, "What great servants of God you are," but "What great God you serve." And, And 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 so it stuck in my craw. And yet over the years, and mind you now, it's coming up, it's over 20 years since that song hit the airwaves, I haven't really seen that drastic of a change in what we'd call evangelical Christian counterculture, where the goal seems to be to exalt people and exalt things instead of oftentimes exalting the God whom we say we serve. And Daniel, who we will look at today, is a great example of this for our lives somebody who i believe long before he was in the lion's den long before his buddies were with the fourth man in the fiery furnace the narratives that have become a part of the life of daniel are really historic and there are things we teach the kids out in sunday school and and everybody knows this this metaphor of having the lion's mouths closed and what great faith daniel must have demonstrated by by doing exactly what god wanted him to do and And people celebrate this, but what we look at in the first chapter of Daniel is demonstrating that long before he ever had an opportunity to do something glorious that everybody would see, Daniel was simply being faithful and serving. American Christianity, in particular, has exported a success syndrome around the world, and you can see sad remnants of it in the continent of Africa, where Even amongst the most dire poverty, people are talking about the health and wealth gospel as if that's going to work out there. You know, in the you know in the in the desert where they don't have any food. Uh, This notion that everything that God does is big and getting bigger and is large and getting larger and everything is about success. This has permeated even the most noble of people, and I say that sort of tongue in cheek because. Christian megapastor Perry Noble Recently made a statement And, and I generally think he, he's a good guy Perry Noble But he said what is the one thing He asked what is the one thing that holds most leaders In the organizations they lead back It's simple the unwillingness to make really hard decisions I honestly believe That most churches are two or three Major decisions away from doubling In size Now he's a Baptist so you gotta give him this But it, doubling in size is huge As if that is the end-all, be-all of what we should be after. Let's double in size. Let's get bigger. Let's get bigger. Let's get bigger. And what I would like to hopefully point us to today by looking at Daniel and his life is to show that we need to redefine what it means for us to think of ourselves as a great church. We're a really young church. We're a really small church. And if being a great church means we have to be big, then we are going to be frustrated in this time. We can be, I believe the scriptures show, that you can be a great church and not necessarily be big. As a matter of fact, I think you can be a big church and not necessarily be great. Daniel had a really interesting life. The last two or three of the Old Testament heroes we've looked at have been prophets and stories and narratives taken from this time period where the Israelites were exiled to Babylonia. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem in 605 B.C. and he besieged it. He invaded Palestine on a number of occasions, but on this particular occasion he decided we're going to take the thing and then we're going to export all these people to a new place. And one of the underlying themes of the book of Daniel is this contrast between the city of God, which was Jerusalem, and the city of Babylon, which is where all of the Jews were exiled to. And this metaphor of God's kingdom versus the world's kingdom is present in the entirety of the book of Daniel and this is why Daniel is such a great leader for us. See, in Babylon, what was happening was the entire culture was standing against what the Israelites were not just being as a nation but thinking and believing. And out of paranoia, they wanted to re-educate these Jews and particularly what they did was they picked through the best of the Jews in terms of the leadership, in terms of their family associations, their giftedness, and the thinking would be, they would be the natural leaders. They would demonstrate the ability to, uh, to lead a rebellion in the future. So they're going to re-educate them. They're going to treat them royally. They're going to make it seem like the best place for them to be is in the bosom of Nebuchadnezzar. They're going to take these leaders, these really gifted people, and seduce them, if you will, into thinking, we don't need to go back to the city of God. We don't need to go back to Jerusalem because there's great joy in being self-fulfilled. There's great joy in being told that we are great, that we are exalted amongst and above everybody else. In Daniel's case, that re-education involved the instruction in astrology and divination and other things that were specifically prohibited by the Torah. See, when you weaken the leaders of a particular movement, you actually strengthen your own political power. And Daniel and his friends were brought into this experience. They were brought into a world where they would even get new names to change their identity. Daniel's name actually means in Hebrew, God is my judge. And so his change in identity was designed so that he would no longer see himself as one of God's children but he would see himself as a child of Babylon. This was the hope. This was the pressure, politically motivated, motivated by the need for more power. And in Daniel's case, his experience following God in a culture that was opposed to many of the notions that were a part of his life and the nation of Israel's lives, this serves as a great example for us about what it means to be great servants of God in our time, and in our church. October is Vision Month every year. We reiterate why it is that we felt like we should, three years ago, be part of starting a new church in an area that has a lot of churches. We talked the first Sunday of this month about the notion of what a prism is and how it is a vehicle through which light pours and the result is a beauty, the beauty of God seen In every nation, tongue, and tribe, every color of the spectrum, every group of people hearing the good news, that we felt like it was imperative to be a church that was not itself worth anything, but it was valuable because light passed through it, and it it serves as a conduit to bring the glory of God to the world. Second week, we talked a lot about what it means for us to be revived, and the hope being that we would be a church that would it help people understand that if they are a Christian, that they're okay with God, and they may struggle with their sin, they may feel like we do, weak and broken, and, and, and yet this has to be a safe place where people who have been away from church and away from the Lord can reconnect and say, what does it mean to be a faithful follower of God? What does it mean to be loved by God? What does it mean to be motivated by His kindness towards me instead of guilt? What, what does that mean? How does that, what does that look like? And how can this happen? See, and as believers are revived, as we talked in week two, last week we said one of the compulsions we have as a church is that we would tell our friends this great news. Not the great news that they can try real hard to be holy and maybe one day not go to hell. That's not great news. That's bad news, friends. We're saying God has eliminated the need for you to perform for him. He has decided to make those who would trust in him okay with him by the grace and mercy of Jesus. And in response to that, like we would in any relationship where somebody way outside of our class has showed interest in us, it would naturally produce a love. I certainly feel that way after 23 years of marriage to Carolyn. I mean, I, I don't know that anybody disagrees with me that I wa- married way above my station and way above like my appearance. And so I, I am particularly grateful uh, the longer I'm married to Carolyn and, and try to express it as often as I can that I'm grateful that she married me. In a very same way, uh, you and I are called to love God, not to try to get him to love us, but because we're growing in, a, in our comprehension that he can't love us any more than he does and that he's particularly affectionate toward us and that he's laid out a path for us to know forgiveness and grace and kindness. And so this is what we want to share with others. And then ultimately, we see revived believers reach friends. And then today, we want to talk about what it means for us to be part of renewing culture. And this is a big umbrella, mind you. It it actually, underneath the umbrella of renewing culture, uh, involves us helping people who are in need coming alongside those who are economically disadvantaged or positionally disadvantaged and and as we have resources to do so, helping people in need. It means coming alongside organizations that are already established in our area, doing great work and supporting them, encouraging them and showing them the kindness and love of God by providing the resources they need. And today's bike ride would be a great example of that. I hope that they will receive our $3,000 in the spirit that is intended. I'm pretty sure their organization has gotten larger gifts. Broken Chains and Oasis USA in specific, our attempt is to do what we can to serve others, to give generously to what somebody else is already doing. We don't need to start an organization to combat sex trafficking. That's already getting done it perhaps is our job to help fund it, to help give it exposure, to come alongside of them and volunteer in ways that we can. But this is part of the spirit of saying it. It's not about us. It's about God and his kingdom and his work. What does it mean for us to be great? What does it mean for us to be a church that is part of renewing culture in addition to helping others who are in need or organizations that are in need? As Mike was already speaking about this morning, Part of it is being who you are in the world. Some of you have amazing gifts in the area of creativity, and you need to know that God wants you to just be you because his creativity, the beauty of his ability to create is seen through what you do. I am not a particularly creative guy. I struggle to find what exactly it is that God is, you know, how God is being seen through my personality maybe God has a sense of humor that's what I think about every now and again but whatever your life is whatever your primary vocation is whatever your passion in life is these are ways for God to show himself because ultimately it's all about the glory of God I have one single thought, and I want to extrapolate that thought out for us to just to dissect and ask a couple of questions about what it means for us as we move forward into what will be our fourth year as a church, just having celebrated our third birthday. And the point that I would like to make this morning is that Daniel's greatness was found in his faithful service. So I want to look at these three components. What is greatness? What is faithful, and what does it mean to serve? Before the lion's den, before the the public ministry of Daniel, Daniel was busy, living in obscurity, being faithful to God long before anybody knew what he was doing. In verse 8, it says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel believed that by taking the royal food and wine, he would defile himself. In Ezekiel chapter 4, there's a prohibition against such things. The reason, though, and D.A. Carson speaks to this as well as any other theologian, it was probably more subtle than simple, you know, devotion to Levitical priesthood, dietary laws, and eating unclean food. And one of the ways you know that is because there was no prohibition in in the Old Testament in the dietary laws against drinking wine. Um, Or really, it wasn't even that he was worried that the food had been offered to idols Probably what was at the heart of Daniel's resistance here is that he simply had determined he was not gonna allow himself to be assimilated either culturally or spiritually into Babylonian culture. And this was one of the ways that he was gonna be able to stand his ground. He had determined in his own mind and in his own heart that these things won't please the Lord, but more than that, what won't please the Lord is for me to forget who I am. I'm a child of God. I'm in the midst of a culture. I do not live and reside currently in the city of God, but I am still supposed to live by virtue of the principles of the city of God. And this is our story. We live in a world that says, you know, there's a whole different way you should live. There are things you should concern yourself with. There are things you should obsess over. And we are day in and day out. Even ministers like me challenged to think differently than what Scripture would say. They were faithful. Jesus said in his parable of the talents that this is really the goal for the believer to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little. I'll set you over much. And Daniel in his faithfulness at this level was given the opportunity and it says in verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them, Daniel and his three friends, 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in the kingdom. Daniel was great. Daniel had clarity about two priorities for him. The the first was that he was concerned first about pleasing God and then he was concerned about putting the needs of others first. What set him apart weren't his high profile events but his behind the scenes determination to do that which gave God pleasure. So it begs the question, what is great? When we start talking about greatness, we have to ask these questions. A book I've just started reading recently called Sensing Jesus by Pastor Dr. Zach Aswine. He says this, the problem we have rises when we suggest that obscurity and greatness are opposites. That fame in our culture and greatness as God sees it are synonyms. Jesus seeks to save us from ourselves and from the devilish lie about greatness. In Jesus, we do not do away with possessing an ambition for great things. Rather, we learn in him to make sure that the greatness we strive for is the kind that he values. You see, I think it's okay for you and I to aspire to great things Ultimately, though, is it so that we can be worshiped or is it so that he can be worshiped? And the test in all that is to say, are the actions, are the things I'm participating in, are the, the movements I'm a part of, are the, uh, are the activities that even our church would participate in, are they designed in, with Jesus' definition of greatness in mind? So what is Jesus' definition of greatness? We read it earlier, Matthew did. Mark 10, 42 through 45, Jesus called them to him and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever be great among you must be your servant and whoever be first among you must be slave of all for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why I said earlier that you can be big at what you do whether your world is a, a business world. You can be really impressive in terms of your, the size of your, your influence in, in your marketplace. You can be a person who owns a big company and has a big building. You can be somebody who has a lot of flash and a lot of evidence of success. But if what, doesn't, if what defines your life is not service to others, putting others first, then Jesus would not characterize your life as great. You and I don't have a problem with wanting to see greatness or wanting to uh, be great. We have a problem with our definition of what is great. And since we would contend that Jesus Christ is himself God in the flesh, that he is the one through whom all things were made, then we think the correct and, and precise definition of greatness, the one that we want to pattern our lives after, would be the one he gave, which is If you're going to be great, you've got to be the servant of all. Because he didn't even come and say, I deserve to be worshipped. I deserve to be obeyed. He came and said, I'm here to give my life to pay the price for your sins. That's what Jesus says greatness is. A.W. Tozer was saying with regards to our own existence, and this is another book I've been digging into lately, The Knowledge of the Holy And he was saying, and I uh, completely concur that to completely save us, to bring us to a place of great joy in life, God was gonna have to begin the process of changing us, changing our bent, our nature, and planting within us a new principle so that our conduct from the moment that we experience forgiveness and the love of God and the grace of God, it springs our our conduct springs out of a desire to promote God's glory and the good of others. That this is the byproduct of genuine believers who've been revived. They eventually get around to seeing their lives as conduits through which the glory of God is seen in their workplace, in their service. Whatever they're doing, and most certainly and hopefully in their church, that people would actually see the greatness of God through their faithful service. And this really is ultimately what we're talking about today. As we look forward to a future together, Prism's greatness will be found in her faithful service. Faithful by caring about what God says first and serving by putting the, others, the needs of others first. There are two little ways I, I want you to see that we're gonna do this in the future. One is uh, pretty significant. It it is a plan to be radically sacrificial in our giving. Right now, our budget is not very much comparatively, but we actually have, when I say we, our board of directors and myself, we actually have a plan of incremental increase in what we're gonna give to missions and mercy as our church gets larger. How many people have often said, you know, if I ever hit the lottery, I'd give a lot of it away. Do you realize that nobody ever does that? Because in advance, you have to start planning for how you're gonna give that away. People who incrementally get more money rarely, if ever, incrementally increase how much they give to others. So what we're saying from the get-go as a church is by the time, and I I lovingly refer to it as the 50-50 by one million plan. And that means that by the time we would have a million dollars a year in a budget, our commitment is that we'd be giving 50% of that away to others, mercy, missions, church planting. That if God's gonna make us a small church, at least we're gonna be a generous church. If we can be great by serving others, and that's what we're gonna be, we're gonna focus on being great. Not great big or great small, just great by definition of what Jesus says, by being radically sacrificially giving. And one of the ways we're gonna pray and fast this year is that our small groups, our home groups, would lead the way in service projects. This is something that we see that we want the Lord to begin to work in our church in a meaningful way and the way that's going to have to happen is is you and I uh, at a very grassroots level people in our church saying I'm willing to do this I'm not going to wait around to have a minister tell me what to do I'm going to lead this charge. You know When I think about my career in radio, I eventually ended up working as a sportscaster in a morning show uh, for an oldies station. And at the moment that I transitioned out of that job and into vocational ministry, which is kind of sort of how it happened for me, I remember thinking to myself that I would never be happier than I was right there in youth ministry. You know, I went to the youth ministry and I said, you know, I'm never gonna be happier than I am right now. And, and I re, and very specifically remember thinking at a certain point in my life that what gave me joy was not doing something in particular, uh, being in radio or being a pastor. What gave me the greatest joy was having a sense that I was doing what God wanted me to do. That, that there was a moment there where I would actually be able to say that I'm doing what I was made to. Do it doesn't matter if that's vocational ministry or if it's some other pursuit. In your case, I you know, I would encourage you to do exactly what you believe you're called to do. Everything eventually will get old, everything that you think you loved so much will eventually lose its luster if that is what is really providing life for you. I remember moving to this area. A few years ago, and thinking, I, I love these mountains just north of us. And I will, you know, having come from the forest in the middle of Florida, you know, I remember thinking, I love mountains. I'll never take them for granted. But I drive alongside them every day. And just like everything else, it loses its luster. There is a danger in losing perspective about that which should make us celebrate God's faithfulness. We cannot define church success the way the world would define church success or church greatness. What good is a big church if people who attend a church aren't revived to really want to love God and serve Him and worship Him more? What, what good is growth and becoming a big church if we've only shuffled butts from one particular congregation to another and eventually another If we've never seen anyone come to Christ for the first time in their life, what good is church growth if we're unable to use the gifts from God to glorify his nature and the culture in which we live? Zach Eswine says, church success can damage our souls when definitions of success are removed from what God teaches us in Eden. When ordinary persons and places made in God's image and given by him are not extraordinary or exceptional for us. We're in real danger when the simple, exciting things about being together as a church family are no longer enjoyable. That means that we're not really enjoying Jesus. In large part, we might be enjoying the rush of being a part of a movement or the rush of being a part of something that's exciting. And while in and of himself, there's nothing wrong with that, it's just not gonna last What lasts is that deep sense in our own souls that we are following the Lord who loves us, that we are faithfully serving him and what he chooses to do with our life, how he chooses to make that move one way or another is really up to him. Let us pray that even today as a group of us serve the Lord humbly, obscurely, that God would be glorified in all that we do here at Prism Church. Let us pray. Lord, for today...